Quiet, numbskulls. I'm broadcasting. TGIF, it's Manson Mitchell with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to jumpstart your weekend. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Hi, everybody. TGIF indeed. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. Together, we are Mance and Mitchell in your ears for the hour if our luck holds up. And of course, if we stay on the right side, the good side of bad boy Benny Mathers at the board. Benny, how are you today, sir? Doing well. That's the best side. And I can see you clearly again. Yes. You've had a lot of smoke in the neighborhood. That's for sure. Man, that had all of us worried. (laughs) Yeah, it was pretty bad up here for a while. That's good enough. We're good. We're good. We're good. We're good. And today, Suzanne, we are going to talk to a lady whom we value greatly, not only for her insight, but also for her on-air friendship with us. She remains one of those people that we have vowed to meet face-to-face one day. That's true. That's true. Let's get right to it. You and I have about a thousand questions At to least. ask her, and, and we're going to fill this hour really fast. Professor Caroline Heldman professor at Occidental College, earned her PhD in political science from Rutgers University and specializes in the American presidency and systems of power. She previously taught at Whittier College, Fairfield University, and Rutgers University. Professor Heldman graduated summa cum laude with a degree in business management from Washington State University. And has worked extensively in the private sector. We are so thrilled to have her today with everything that is going on in the political world. Welcome once again to Manson Mitchell, Professor Heldman. It is so wonderful to be here. Uh, And go Cougs. Yeah, go Cougs. Woo! I was just going to say, Caroline, with you and Benny around, I feel like the whole world is always within six degrees of separation from the Palouse. Yeah, the best part. (laughs) (laughs) Always a joy to have you with us, Caroline Heldman. Caroline, last night, and this was something I didn't think I would lead with, but I'll just let me throw this little hand grenade into the mix here. I read about a man in Tennessee, a former office holder in that state, there who made quite an impression, certainly in his region, advising people to not give in to the socialist agenda by wearing masks, that it is a hoax, that all this is being pushed by the radical left who wants you to succumb to their fear-mongering. And he encouraged people to make up their own minds, but he was an anti-masker. The reason why I read about him is that after nearly a month in the hospital, in the last two days, he died of the COVID virus. And his family said that they were processing what had happened. And my instant reaction was, well, you folks process it good. This is the kind of world we live in today, Caroline. You're a woman of letters. You are a a very astute observer in many areas of our national life. And you cover the national landscape as a recognized pundit somebody who is legitimately a person who makes observations for the benefit of our consideration. With all of that said, when you look at the national landscape, particularly in terms of politics and social values today, what are you seeing? Well, uh, I am seeing a country that is 5% of the global population, but has 25% of the COVID-19 cases. I'm seeing a country that has um, absolutely failed in our response to 
a global pandemic. And, and beyond failing in our response to the global pandemic, um, we're so a good chunk of our citizenry is so misinformed that we we don't even believe that it's happening. Right. So basically, we have pandemic denial um, on a mass scale. And this is coming from the White House. This is coming from the mixed messaging of Donald Trump about wearing masks. This is coming from Donald Trump downplaying it and some other members of the GOP downplaying it. Um, I think it, it's actually pretty heartbreaking that we're going to see uh, a partisan difference in terms of death rates on the other end of this. Um, and I know this to be the case because masking actually reduces your likelihood of getting the coronavirus. And some scientists are even saying that that it is um, minimize it, it is giving people immunity because people are getting asymptomatic or um, virtually asymptomatic um, strains or brands of uh, the coronavirus. I shouldn't say brand strains, right? So because the mask um, is preventing um, a lot of it from getting into your system that you may actually be getting immunity from masks and having the coronavirus with, without even knowing that you have it. So we do have some good data on this. We also have good data that shows that Democrats are twice as likely to mask 100% of the time when they leave the House than Republicans. So um, it shouldn't be this way. Your political party should not determine your likelihood of dying during a pandemic, but that's exactly where we are. You know, Caroline, in the, <clears throat> the simplest explanation, and I find this very, very difficult to process myself is that initially all of the cases were in what our president was calling the blue states. And so that was part of the decision-making not to mask up was that the people who were getting infected were in New York and California and Washington state. And so I just find that hard to believe that a decision would be made like that when you're president of the entire country. Do you think there's any truth to that? I don't love conspiracy theories, Suzanne, but I do. Um, you know, I, I'm with you that I think it is suspicious. I think a couple of things um, may be a play here. So first off, we do know that he, he had a 71-day delay before he took any action, and then the action is not enough. And what is so shocking to me is that the action is still not enough. We still haven't really responded to this pandemic from a national level, whether it be, you know, getting supplies, national masking mandates, um, treating this, you know, shutting down the economy. I mean, our, we, we should have shut down entirely for one month, according to Andy Slavitt, who ran uh, Obama's response and actually put together a plan to respond to pandemics. Um, according to him, we are always one month away from if we were to shut down, truly shut down for one month, we would be one month away from having a very manageable, almost no cases of COVID-19. We haven't done that. And so we tanked our economy. We have the largest slide since the Great Depression in our, in our economic, in our, our GDP, and the number of people going on unemployment. And this was all relatively preventable, mostly preventable. And what we do know is that Donald Trump knew it was a threat early on. If you listen to the Bob Woodward tape, he was talking about this in ways that we've never heard him talk about it in public. He was very clear that it affected everyone, not just older people, that 50 percent of people were asymptomatic and that he knew it was going to be a national crisis, an emergency. And yet he downplayed it. Right. And, and he later gave 
the reasoning that he didn't want to panic people. Well, I'm sorry, we're in a pandemic. A certain level of, of panic is required for people to, A, understand the threat that it poses, and B, take the actions that they need to prevent it from spreading. None of that happened. And so in, in looking at why none of that happened, I think, Suzanne, uh, we can do a media analysis to see exactly. So after the fact, I'm anticipating that we can research this to determine why these decisions were made. And one part of it, I think, will be that it mostly affected blue state cities. And I think another part of it, too, I saw a, a significant shift in rhetoric and action from the White House and other GOP leaders when the data came out that this was disproportionately affecting black Americans, that black Americans were dying at much higher rates having to do with pre-existing conditions related to, you know, a lifelong experience of systemic racism, related to the fact that black Americans ha are less likely to have health insurance. And when they do interact with the healthcare system, they get a, a lower quality of care based upon, you know, racism. So I think the the red state, blue state effect came in. I also think um, that we simply, some of us in this country care less about black people than we do about white Americans, and that that may have been driving policy as well. When I think of what my parents told me about Pearl Harbor, I put that in a juxtapose, is what I do. I think about Pearl Harbor and the national mobilization for war that was announced the following day by Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And there was a declaration of war after war had been declared on us. If that isn't a time for panic, nothing is. And yet we soldiered on, we sailored on as a nation. We did what we had to do to preserve our existential existence uh, in terms of freedom, in terms of democracy, in terms of protecting this land that we cherish. It was an existential moment in American history. And then Donald Trump tells Bob Woodward that he plays it down and wishes to continue playing it down because he doesn't want to cause a panic. And I look at those two things and I, I wonder what tells Donald Trump, apart from political considerations, because it is an election year, what sort of panic he is afraid of when we overcame Hitler and the Japanese military empire in the span of from December 1941 until uh, September 1, 1945, we did all of that as a nation with far less technology and openness of communication and communication channels than we possess now. So what is it that Donald Trump is afraid of doing really? I think he was very driven by the short-term uh, loss of business in the, in the economy. Meanwhile, had we shut down for one month, we would have seen far fewer losses. I think he was driven by, by his corporate concerns. Um, I can't say for sure because it's actually such an inexplicable response that the leader of our nation would fail us so profoundly and continue to fail us so profoundly. Um, it actually doesn't make sense. And so we have to look and see, well, what could have possibly been driving him? Um, we know that he's he is driven by corporate concerns. We know that he, you know, will put profits above people's lives um, in different ways. And I think this may be another example of that. I think so, too. He has demonstrated that time and again. And even if I may be allowed this short spur on the road we're on right now, I'm trying to put myself in the place, Caroline, of being a Trump supporter. 
and wow, this red hat sure looks good on me, even though it was made in China. And I've got my T-shirt on. We're going to make America great again, because apparently it wasn't great before Donald Trump showed up. And I am believing all this. And then I find out, I'm confronted with the report of someone who was there listening to Donald Trump say, maybe there's this much good out of the COVID pandemic. At least I don't have to shake hands with all those people. They're disgusting. I'm not, I'm not inclined to vote for somebody who considers me disgusting. And yet there they are, full-throated and maskless at these rallies. And I confess to you, Caroline, I just don't get it. Well, I, I am heartbroken when I see that. I just, I am, because it, it will be a partisan death toll. It will be, it will differ by political party. But I think that Donald Trump has, he's never been shy about, um, he and his supporters have never been shy about what he appeals to, right? He, he really does appeal to a certain segment of the population that believes they have been left behind by the advances of women and people of color. And so levels of racial resentment are off the charts with his supporters com compared to even other Republicans, but, but Americans more broadly. Um, the, the rates of, um, of traditional sexism are also off the charts for his supporters. And so it's about 30% of Americans, right, who are diehard supporters of Donald Trump, about one in three. And these are folks for, for whom his rhetoric, his you know, xenophobic, racist, and sexist rhetoric really resonates because it, it makes them feel secure in a world that is changing, in a world that, that they believe has, has unfairly left them behind. Um, I wrote about this, you know, before the election, um, and it was pretty controversial then, but I actually don't think, I think it's just obvious now, right? So he's using this rhetoric where he um, talks about Mex Mexican people, you know, uh, immigrants not sending their best, that they're rapists. Um, he then um, passes uh, a Muslim ban on immigration, uh, a xenophobic ban. He talks about women in ways that are just openly sexist. He calls, you know, any woman with the voice or opinion who comes, who uh, disagrees with him is a nasty woman. He, you know, inflicts the angry black woman stereotype on um, on Kamala Harris, the vice presidential candidate. Um, I mean, I, we could go on and on about what he has said uh, about black people, about Latinx people, about people from other countries. He, his policies then enacted, right, the kids in cages, the Muslim ban. So um, he is very much um, playing into the idea that this, you know, that, that makes this group feel good about themselves, um, which is that he is, he is a voice for them in a world that is changing. At the end of the day, of course, um, nobody, everybody deserves the same place in our society. So the idea that somehow they're losing, you know, this group of people is losing something they're entitled to, um, you know, really speaks to a grieved entitlement, right? This idea that they um, should be on the top of the social heap, even though they haven't earned a, a place there simply because they are white, uh, because they are male. <clears throat> the big question in my mind, Caroline, it, it, the really big question for me in all of this is, does he have enough people conned? And, and I look at that because, you know, I just shake my head in disbelief every single day I have to, uh, from time to time, just completely withdraw from the news because I just find it so upsetting. And I think to myself, can there be that many people who believe this? 
and, and uh, you know, apparently there are quite a few, but is it going to be enough to get him reelected? Well, Suzanne, it, it, what's interesting is it clearly isn't enough, and they know it because they are attempting every which way to Sunday to make sure we don't have a free and fair election. So you've got a party that is pushing court cases, you know, uh, hundreds of court cases up to the Supreme Court and up to higher courts, trying to slow the vote, trying to limit the vote, right? Whether it's uh, folks who are formerly incarcerated and and disenfranchisement of those voters, um, whether you're talking about limiting mail-in ballots, whether or not you're talking about um, having people pay to have to, uh, for for postage to return their ballots. Um, I mean, they are, the GOP is really trying to limit the vote because if you have a vote today, um, you know, Donald Trump in every poll nationally, it's a landslide. It's almost a, you know, almost a 10-point lead of Biden over Trump. Now, the Electoral College, of course, magnifies the votes of smaller states. Um, and they're in the Electoral College uh, in the swing states. Um, Biden is up. And so Donald Trump knows he's in trouble, which is why we are now in a constitutional crisis, because he has been talking so vehemently about, um, you know, not um, not necessarily respecting the outcome of the election um, and, you know, tossing votes, not doing a full count. And I just want to be clear that we will have a coup if one of three things happen. One, if we don't count all of the votes, that will be a coup if it stops before all the votes are counted, which, by the way, Rick Scott in the state of Florida is now proposing a 24 hour, uh, you know, that that the state will only count votes for 24 hours. That would be an example of a coup because that is that is not allowing all of the votes to be counted that were you know legitimately cast. Um, the second is if Donald Trump claims victory before all the votes are counted, that would be a coup. The third is. If all the votes are counted and Donald Trump is not the victor in the Electoral College, but he claims victory anyway. And I think it's really important if you look at at research on coups, um, 50 percent of them actually are stopped by the people whom they are inflicted upon. And they're stopped in a couple of ways. One way is that you call it a coup. You have to call it a coup. You have to call it what it is. Don't pussyfoot around. Don't do the whole, you know, like the press didn't call Donald Trump's lies, lies, you know, for many years. They called them other euphemisms. We actually need to call this what it is, which would be a coup. Um, The second thing is we need to do, if, if any of these three things happen, And I would assume that Republicans and independents would join in because nobody likes a coup. Nobody likes their democracy and their political system to be hijacked. Um, We would need to immediately take to the streets. We would need to um, protest. We would need to stop working and refuse to work and refuse to go to school. And we would need to shut down the entire country um, in order to save our political system. And it sounds like I'm being alarmist. But what is alarmist? is that Donald Trump has actually made um, what many legal scholars are calling a criminal or treasonous claim, where he is calling, he is saying that he may not peacefully transfer power. If he actually does that, then we are in serious trouble. And if you look at what he's done in the past, he typically tells you the egregious things he's going to do. And so um, I think we need to be pre- prepared for the worst because Donald Trump has told us he will engage in the worst. He has said that he's been not just telegraphing it, he's as much as announced it. Because if the mail-in ballots are allowed, by definition in Donald Trump's mind, and his enablers certainly encourage him in this regard, 
He says, by definition, the election itself is illegitimate. It can be invalidated because of the fact of mail-in ballots. It must be a hoax because Donald Trump says so. And he's got somebody who is a competitive enemy of the United States Postal Service for narrowly financial reasons in his case. He has the postmaster general who seems to have been handpicked in order to give somebody an opportunity who would love to gut that august institution going back to Benjamin Franklin days in order to benefit himself financially. And I don't hear a peep of protest from the Republicans about any of that. Well, Gary, you bring up a really good point that Donald Trump is not alone in this. He has enablers from top to bottom. Our attorney general, the top cop in our country, is his right-hand person in all of this, which is disturbing because Barr actually has read the Constitution. He has facility with that document. So he knows precisely how badly Donald Trump is bending and breaking our founding documents. And if we do not have rule by a constitution, a shared document, then we don't have a democracy. Um, yeah, they have tried again. They've, they have tried to limit free, the free and fair election on November 3rd in so many different ways, including gutting uh, the post office and having the post office gut its own services. Um, it's we're we are in trouble and, and, and we are we are in a sort of trouble that we haven't been in um, since the years leading up to the Civil War. And I'm not making the claim that we're headed for a civil war, although I have some ideas on that. I think it, it, we're, we're going in a very bad direction. And I would just say that part of this is really being driven by, by, foreign, um, by foreign influence, right? So we know that Russia hacked our election in 2016. Um, 21 states had their voting systems hacked. They also ran a massive and very expensive a disinformation campaign on Facebook and other social media platforms. And at the end of the day, we've never properly investigated that. We know that it didn't end in 2016, and we know those efforts have ramped up. We also know that, that Russia has been driving, uh, and perhaps other foreign influence, but Russia has, we know for sure, has been driving uh, the mass and, and quick polarization of our country and uh, through disinformation campaigns on social media. And if you haven't seen this, this documentary, The Social Dilemma, it is worth watching. It is depressing and horrifying to see how much um, basically shadow efforts have gone into getting us to where we are now, which is divided, uh, chaotic, uh, willing, some of us willing to engage in violence against the other party, misinformed, to the point where even though we are on a collision course um, with a constitutional crisis in November, um, almost nobody cares. Almost, almost no Americans are really taking this as seriously as they need to. That's the way it appears to me. It absolutely does. And what I am sensing, too, from something that Donald Trump said yesterday, there, and I'm paraphrasing, he feels that it's important to have a fully stacked Supreme Court, all nine justices in place after the election. We need to have that. He is foreordaining that it will be decided by the Supreme Court as it was in 2000. It's like that's part of his game plan. He's made that very clear, hasn't he, Gary? I mean, he's, yes. Um, and the court, uh, short-term effects of that, they're going to overturn the Affordable Care Act. And yes, they are going to uh, limit 
the, right now with the, with the loss of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, the court is already um, she she was one of the votes. She was the vote that was stopping many of these limitations on the free and fair election in November because the court is hearing many cases now that pertain to the November election. They will most certainly rule in Donald Trump's favor because it's now such an, uh, a super majority, uh, very politicized branch of government. Donald Trump has. Uh, will by that time likely have a, have uh, seated three of the justices. The long game effect here is this is very much you know uh, an effort to overturn Roe v. Wade. That'll happen. It, it will either happen overtly or it will be a chipping away. And there's almost nothing the Democrats can do because of the way Mitch McConnell has stitched things up. Um, I don't think it, it's a partisan statement. I think folks left, right, and center know what happened four years ago, three and a half years ago, when uh, Mitch McConnell refused to uh, hear, uh, refused to hold a hearing on Merrick Garland, who was um, President Obama's Supreme Court pick. So they stole a seat. Um, they stole a seat, and now they're going to have a, a six-person majority. Um, the rule, of course, back then was. Uh, according to Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham and others, Lindsey Graham even saying, use my words against me, we shouldn't be seating a Supreme Court justice during an election year. So they just made up a rule that's not in the Constitution that we've never had before to benefit them, and now they have gone back on that rule. Um, and there seems to be no shame about this, that our political – I mean, one thing I love about our system is that we've got rules, and yes, while they get interpreted and they shift and morph over time – Generally, parties don't just make up rules. Um, but Mitch McConnell has has used nuclear options again and again. He's he's shifted rules to benefit the Republicans in a way that profoundly now shapes us moving forward for 30 or 40 years. So his big legacy and Donald Trump's big legacy is that they've stacked the courts with people who are less qualified, some of them deemed unqualified by the American Bar Association, um, but who've been handpicked by the Federalist Society, which has essentially become a shadow organ of the government. Um, their goal is to overturn Roe v. Wade. Their goal is to advance corporate positions. So for the first time in the modern political era, we are going to have a Supreme Court that is wildly out of step with the American public, because as the, support, the Supreme Court has become much, much more conservative and it is about to get even more conservative because the Democrats cannot stop this appointment, um, they, the American public has actually shifted to, to the left. So a couple of stats, 71 um, percent of Americans want to keep abortion rights as they are. The court's going to overturn that or chip away. Um, on the other hand, about 70% of Americans want to get rid of Citizens United that allows corporate money in politics, but the court's going to uphold that. Um, they're going to gut environmental legislation that's coming through Congress and the presidency, um, even if the Democrats you know, gain control. And so what we're going to see is the overturning of major precedents that we've just come to see as normal. We're going to see the court going against public opinion as a highly politicized body, as, as a minority rule. Um, we're also going to see the court stopping legislation that is coming out of uh, a likely democratically controlled Congress and White House. Um, and, and the courts are going to be the place of last resort where uh, right-wing extremists go to make sure that they can stop whatever progress is being made uh, that reflects what the American public actually wants. So we're going to be in a crisis of minority rule as a result of the court being so lopsided as a result of uh, the Republicans stealing a seat. Wow. 
That's that's yeah, that, a lot to take in. We need to pick up on those threads on the other side of a break. We have a break coming up. We are talking with Professor Caroline Heldman of Occidental College. We have many more questions, so stay with us. And thank you for listening to Manson Mitchell on Alternative Talk, AM 1150. We'll be right back. The preceding audio was via a Skype call. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to manceandmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash Mitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world fame, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is ManceAndMitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Terry Loving wants to help you with your online marketing challenges right now. She has several courses she is giving away to help you get your business working for you online. Yes, giving away. WordPress websites are her specialty, yet her technical skills go way beyond that. Check out her blog at terryloving.com or email her directly at terry at terryloving.com. That's terry at terryloving.com. What do trees make you think of? Life, longevity, health? There's a reason for that. They're the building blocks of our ecosystems, capable of restoring land and environment while creating stable food systems and economic opportunity. At Trees for the Future, for 30 years, we've worked with smallholder farmers in developing countries to establish sustainable agroforestry methods. Where there was once deforestation and poor agricultural practices, there are now thriving microenvironments we call forest gardens, made up of more than 50 species of trees and dozens of shrubs, fruits, and vegetables. Through Trees for the Future's forest garden approach, thousands of farming families have successfully brought their land back to life. A sustainable solution to hunger, poverty, and climate change. Sponsored by Trees for the Future. You're invited to join the movement at trees.org slash radio. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. We're a couple of baby boomers who bring you a talk radio mix of metaphysics and music, politics, and pop culture. And you never know which celebrity will join us for an interesting conversation. Mance and Mitchell is Boomer HQ, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on 1150 AM KKNW. Your home for alternative talk in Seattle and Western Washington. Alternative Talk 1150, here to uplift your day. Scaramucci, will you do the Fandango? We'll take help <laughs> wherever we can find it nowadays. <laughs> Welcome back to Manson Mitchell and our guest, Caroline Heldman, this hour. Caroline, if people would like to find out more about you and what you do, do you have a website? Where can they get more information and connect with you if they want to do that? I do uh, have a website, uh, Dr. Caroline Heldman. And also, I'm on all the social media handles. Uh, I got on early enough, so I actually just have my name, Caroline Heldman, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm also on TikTok, but not really doing much there. 
Okay, good. Thank you. I wanted Bohemian Rhapsody today because party on, Caroline. <laughs> in addition, it just seems to me that we're in a situation where a lot of us are saying, any way the wind blows, it doesn't really matter to me. And this kind of apathy is deadly when, and I keep going back to use of the word existential, it seems that our constitutional Republican form of government, that small r Republican, uh, it, with principles of democracy undergirding it, all of that, the whole enchilada seems to be at risk and is currently being warped by a little silhouette of a man who presumes to the presidency. Um, that's a fantastic way of putting it. And I don't know if I can ever listen to that song the same way again. <laughs> Caroline, I, I have a question, something that came up this week that was even more shocking than everything else that has shocked me for all these months. And that was the idea that the votes might not be counted, but that the various states will just have electors who will decide who won in their state. What, what is that about? How, what, is my, what is your understanding of that? Because I just heard it and I'm going, what the heck? And I'm just shaking my head. I don't really get what that's about. Ah, so uh, the Atlantic article that came out and talked about how there are loopholes in our system that can be exploited. And these are not loopholes that we normally think about because normally you don't have a government that is going through and exploiting the rules and norms in such a way as the Trump administration. Um, but the process would be that because of the way uh, that we have set up the Electoral College, so just taking a step back, right, presidential elections are not popular votes. They are votes that happen in the Electoral College, which is um, you, you're actually going in and casting a vote for a slate of electors from your state. And it's there are 538 members of the Electoral College. So it's uh, you know, member for every member of the House of Representatives and every member of the Senate in your state, that is the vote in the Electoral College. So, you know, in California, it's 55 votes. Um, in Florida, it's 27 votes. And then there are three uh, votes for the District of Columbia. So those 538 people are the actual electors who decide the president. Um, and almost every state has a winner-take-all system. Um, Maine and Nebraska have more proportional systems, but they end up being winner-take-all by and large, too. So winner-take-all meaning that in California, it's going to go Democratic. So it doesn't matter that Donald Trump gets X percentage of the vote. All 55 electors are going to go for him. Well, the way in which it is seated, uh, the, these electors are seated, um, Republican legislatures uh, could actually override the uh, way in which we set up the Electoral College, and they could vote for their own slate of electors. So Donald Trump, there's a possibility, um, and, and this came actually from someone concerned in the White House who leaked this, that they're discussing having the Trump administration go to specific Republican states and having them just seat their own electors regardless of the outcome of the vote. Um, and there are loopholes that would allow them to do that. So once again, we have this kind of you know, terrifying scenario where our democracy is in threat um, or under threat and the White House is discussing these things. Um, who knows if that will happen? But I think, again, we need to be prepared for the worst because as, from what we've seen, when Donald Trump starts talking about something, um, even if it's really awful, uh, he tends to follow through on it. 
Well, he definitely does. And then he claims promises kept. That one promise to reveal his tax returns, to release them if I win, he said back in 2016. Well, it's 2020 and we have, haven't seen them yet. I find that he's very selective with his declarations that he is a man who keeps his promises. They have a few miles of wall built on the border with Mexico, for which Mexico has not paid, by the way. But I guess that's a promise kept, even if he has to take money, which is otherwise appropriated for the Defense Department in order to achieve that little bit. There's this this grand scenario, and it makes me feel as though 1984 in its substance and spirit is becoming the Orwellian nightmare of 2020, which we usually identify with clear vision. Well, and you bring up a really good point, Gary, right, which is that we're not actually seeing it clearly because um, different parts of uh, our country are getting entirely different, I'll call put news in quotes, news stories. Um, so if you are in the Fox ecosphere, um, in the Breitbart ecosphere, um, and that's where you're learning your knowledge about the world, you are living in a non-reality-based world. They're not even attempting to describe reality, right? So you're living in a world where masks don't work during a pandemic, even though they actually do, and uh, keep not only you but other people safe if you practice social distancing as well. Um, you're living in a world where climate change isn't real. You're living in a world um, where Donald Trump gets to bend the rules of our democracy, and it doesn't really matter because it's him. You're living in a world where our attorney general has just made up a designation uh, for certain um, cities, Seattle, Portland, and um, New York, calling them anarchist jurisdictions, which if you look up what the term anarchy means or know anything about anarchists is uh, a contradiction in terms. But you, you look at that and you're, you know, you're in uh, rural North Dakota and you're watching the news, you would actually believe the, the absolute false depiction of Seattle, Portland and New York, that these are cities that are on fire and, and violent from brutal thugs. Um, there's a racial component to it as well because it's associated with Black Lives Matter. When in reality, 93% of protests have no violence, and the, the remaining 7%, uh, percent, according to the ProPublica study, have, uh, you know, it could be as something as simple as, um, you know, tagging or it, it's property damage. So it, it's just this fascinating, like, flip of reality on its head where, you know, one square block of protest and people exercising their First Amendment rights on behalf of simply saying that Black Lives Matter becomes a moment where, uh, the, the, uh, where Donald Trump and Barr um, set up fear-mongering and they send in federal troops and they, they inspire violence. Uh, we saw this in Portland when the federal troops came in, the rates of violence went, you know, skyrocketed because uh, federal, you know, unmarked um, federal troops were uh, instigating violence. And then when they left, the violence levels declined. Um, when in reality, if you look at the facts, Tulsa, Oklahoma, for example, has three times the murder rate of Portland, Oregon. Oklahoma City has twice the murder rate of Portland, Oregon. And yet our attorney general is gets to, and, and our president, uh, get to just say something and make it reality when it's not. And I, I use these examples and could talk about this for an hour about, you know, if we're, try, if we're scratching our head and trying to figure out why it is that a third of America believes things that are simply not true, um, it has everything to do with 
of the right-wing media ecosphere that is echoing what is coming out of the right, the, the White House, and uh, Russia is right on board in advancing a lot of this mis- misinformation through social media. Um, it's a loosely coordinated campaign, but one that has profound effects in terms of people not being able to access reality. You know, it it, it seems like um, in a lot of this conversation, the the idea of um, re-electing Donald Trump is going to benefit Russia greatly. And it's, again, with my limited understanding here, if we're a mess here in the United States, if democracy takes it in the shorts here, then that benefits Russia how? Because then Trump would just be another satellite of the Russian empire? That's certainly part of it, I think, Suzanne. Um, so uh, there's also, I think, an added element that um, that if we are in chaos, um, then Russia can do what it wants to do. Um, oh, yeah. And, and Russia is running misinformation campaigns all over the globe um, in order to destabilize democracies, because the more we are in chaos and destabilize, uh, the more global power Russia will have, but also the more Russia will be able to act with impunity without the world community involved. Um, and that's what's happened, right? So Donald Trump has become a global laughingstock. Um, we're no longer seen as a good ally in the UN. Uh, so basically everything that Putin could have imagined um, that he wanted to happen with the United States has happened with Donald Trump at the helm. And Donald Trump to anyone, anybody in New York, New Jersey, who remembers him from his business empire days, which continue, by the way, in violation of the Constitution in terms of the emoluments clause. That doesn't seem to trouble many people, except those who pay attention to constitutional law. But with all of that going on, people who are who well remember his activities in New York, in New Jersey, particularly Atlantic City, they realize that what Rick Wilson, the, the conservative pundit says is true. Everything Trump touches dies. He is the master of chaos. And how could we have expected anything other than that, wondered a lady of my acquaintance here locally who said, don't people read the papers? I said, well, around here, they don't read the the New York Times, the New York Post, or the Daily News necessarily. You get a lot of that stuff online and on TV. But the bottom line with Trump is wherever he goes, chaos follows. Well, he obviously has some mental health challenges. And so as much as I want to be really angry at Trump the man, I am actually angrier at the people around him who take advantage of and are benefiting from his instability. Um, There are Republicans who are advancing a pro-life agenda that they've been waiting, you know, 40 years to advance at the federal level and taking advantage of his instability that way. Um, there are uh, white supremacists who are now coming, you know, the cockroaches are out, out in the daytime now. Um, and they know, they know who he is. They're watching the same, you know, they're watching the same clips that we are of Donald Trump. They see what he is doing. They see, uh, you know, his, his instability, um, but they're holding their noses. Uh, the entire, you know, the Senate GOP leadership certainly knows who he is, and they are taking advantage of this moment in order to ram through things that they otherwise would not be able to. So at the end of the day, he has a lot of enablers, and I, I hope that at some point in retrospect we will 
look at this through the lens of mental health and the exploitation of someone with mental health issues. That is a very fair comment. Are you uh, thinking that we might see some surprises in the direction of the Senate? Um, you know, we hear these little hopeful things here and there about different elections in various states and how things are trending even or within a point or two of each other. Do you think we'll be surprised in a good way? Uh, wow, I hope so, only because I would like to have um, the rules restored. Uh, less about partisanships. You know, I think the three of us are all on, and, and baby Benny are all on the same page. The partisanship isn't really what drives us. But I, I do like good policies that serve people, and I do like uh, the rules to be followed in our basic, you know, political institutions. And so that's a kind of general way of saying, yeah, there's definitely some hope if we have a free and fair election. I think, for example, uh, Martha McSally, uh, who filled um, – who is uh, standing for John McCain's seat right now is likely going to be bested by Mark Kelly, uh, who is the spouse of Gabby Giffords. Um, he's an astronaut. They, he's polling much higher uh, in, in the polls than McSally at this point. And he would actually be seated almost immediately. So he could be seated, um, you know, as quickly as the end of November, whereas uh, the rest of the senators, even if there's a, you know, even if Democrats take the Senate, they won't actually be seated until January. So because he's going into a special seat, he will be there uh, nice and early. Um, Cory Gardner's seat is also up. Lindsey Graham's seat, oddly enough, um, is up. And I think that probably has more to do um, with rumors, uh, homophobic rumors that the Democrats are not using against Lindsey Graham, but he's, um, you know, information came out in the past year that uh, indicates that um, that that he may be, uh, well, I, I'm not even going to advance the rumors. I really hate homophobia, but I actually think that's probably playing a bigger role in that state with his conservative base uh, than his challenger. So there are a number of seats. Um, that the Republicans are very worried about. So there's a reason why Mitch McConnell, too, wants to rush the Supreme Court um, justice through, uh, because he knows that he may not hold the Senate on the other side of this election. Politi yes. Politically yeah. speaking, Caroline, I'm going to use the B word, not the one you're thinking. Here's the B word, blackmail. I'm sitting here listening to you, and it dawns on me in a way that it has not before. That's one of the reasons we like to bring you on, for the insight, and you spark insights. The B word being blackmail. Can you imagine the size of the dossier that sits on the desk of Vladimir Putin? Maybe he keeps it locked in a drawer. The dossier on Donald Trump. If you go to Pyongyang, can you imagine the dossier compiled by Kim Jong-un and his cohort, what they have on Donald Trump? And this would be true around the world. The investigations being done by our own allies. Is this person trustworthy in terms of NATO or bilateral agreements? And they seem to have concluded no. For now, anyway, we cannot trust him. That's my perception of it. And then domestically, can you imagine the blackmail capabilities of a Donald Trump and his cohort when it comes to a Lindsey Graham or to anyone who might have to stand up for principles that they articulated forcefully four years ago or more when they run afoul of Donald Trump's personal wishes. What has what do all of these people have on each other? And then I stop and think, is that what's running the world today? 
or or has that always been what's running the world, Gary? Right? <laughs> it's this interesting. It's hard to say. We're speculating. It sounds very conspiratorial. But what we do know is that Putin has has indicated this, right? Or or his his people have indicated that they have things on Trump. Um, Trump is not a particularly discreet man. If he was a particularly discreet man, we wouldn't know about his. Uh, now 44 cases of sexual mis- misconduct or allegations of sexual misconduct, um, 23 of which involve some form of, of sexual violence, meaning battery, uh, assault, or rape. Um, he, he's not discreet, and so it would not surprise me at all if there's a lot of information about him in the hands of foreign leaders, in the hands of perhaps um, you know, uh, corporate titans. Um, it is it is shocking to see him not release his tax returns. It is shocking to see his um, the, his deferential behavior to Vladimir Putin at the same time that he is insulting our longtime allies, uh, the French, uh, the Brits. Um, it it his behavior is inexplicable, and I think and again, anytime. He engages in things that you can't really explain. There, there has to be an explanation, um, and I think that that's a reasonable one given his history of how he operates. And that leads me to ask you, Caroline, and this, of course, is just a thumbnail estimate that, that even pollsters would have to concede has a margin of error. Would you say that we have even one vote in 10 at this point in the election, even 10% of the electorate, people who plan to vote, who are undecided. George Will was openly asking after three and a half years of this stuff from Trump, how can anyone be undecided? Well, you know, I think folks in Trump's camp might be undecided. I think that it has been exhausting, but he does advance some of their core values. So, for example, 31% of the American public um, votes um, almost single-issue abortion. And so if you were... On, on the in the Republican Party, maybe in the right wing uh, of the Republican Party, and you were maybe going to stay home from the election uh, or weren't sure you could hold your nose for Donald Trump given other things that he's done, which might conflict with your values, now all of a sudden he's running the same scheme he ran last time, which is the Republicans are dangling uh, a Supreme Court seat with the possibility of overturning Roe v. Wade. That was the game plan back in 2016. It's the same. They're running the same play this time. Um, You might actually then say, okay, I'm going to go to the polls and vote for him. I can now hold my nose and do that. So I can imagine some of those scenarios. But, Gary, you bring up a really good point, which is that we have fewer undecided voters in this election than in a typical presidential election. It seems like it's always, or not always, but it seems frequently since I've been voting that it's like the lesser of two evils. Well, I don't like this one, but I don't like that one even more. And so I I rarely say this is a person that I really would like to see in the White House. I did feel that way about President Obama. I thought, I really want to see this man in the White House. But for most of the time, it's like, oh, it's a kind of a coin toss. I'm not sure who I want. And, and, and it isn't, uh, then it's just kind of based on my own, my own values and my own philosophy. But I agree with you. I think most people have made up their mind. It's only going to be whether I hold my nose and vote for them or whether I get out and, and vote for Biden. Are we still connected? Uh, we may yeah, not we're still be. Here. Oh, we oh, are. Okay. okay. Caroline, are you there? Oh, sounds like we, okay. uh, we might have, have lost her. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, let me right. see if I can get her back. Okay, okay, that sounds fine. 
there is so much to consider. I think that's uh, more even than in 2016, Suzanne, what I am seeing is an electorate absolutely saturated with conflicting information and with charges on both sides that are so dizzying that if you haven't made up your mind yet, I don't know on what your vote would turn at this point. What would you point to and say, well, it's because of this or it's because of that? And don't tell me it's Hillary's emails. And I, I don't think there's going to be an October surprise at this point. I think people are pretty well entrenched one side or the other. I don't I don't think something's going to come up now in October. I got her back, going, by the way. Sorry. That's going to put a large segment into one side or the other. Yeah, Caroline, we were just saying that... Uh, this whole idea, there's there's such a welter of issues and so many charges and counter charges that if I were an undecided voter, I don't know what I would hang my hat on when I went to vote. What would be the one thing? And it's not Benghazi or Hillary's emails. And it's not that what uh, Donald Trump said on the bus, all that became known worldwide and he got elected anyway. So on what would my vote turn? Well, I think it would be abortion at this point. I think it would be the Supreme Court. And Suzanne, you bring up a really good point that our, our political system is not about radical change, right? It provides us candidates who are generally kind of in the middle. And so I, as I explain it to my students, you know, you either start – if you want radical social change, you want the world to be much better, um, for example, for black people. You want black lives to matter as much as white lives in our country, for example. Um, you either vote for a candidate who's in the basement on that, which would be Donald Trump. Or you vote for a candidate who's on the second floor, which would be Joe Biden. Um, but it's not going to get you to the roof. And that's where social movements come in. That's where the people put pressure on the political system and on politicians to get the actual big change that they want to see in the world. But it's not going to happen through electoral politics. That's just kind of the starting place. Yes. And, and if I may, Caroline, we yeah. only have about 30 seconds. Do you believe there is a real prospect should Donald Trump be returned to the White House do you see a general strike, a formal general strike, as has happened in other parts of the world from time to time? I would say I hope so. Uh, but the misinformation campaigns make it hard for me to be confident that the American public would do what it would need to do if we had a coup regime. Okay, Caroline, On thank you for being note, with us. And thank you for your profound understanding and honesty, Caroline. We would love to have you back sometime after the election to help us sort out the results or lack thereof after November 3rd. Thank you so much. You're a blessing. Thank you both. Thank you all. Have a wonderful day. Okay, stay tuned for the Christine Upchurch Show, followed by the Susan Harmon Experience and American Road Trip Talk with Gary Mance, whose guest today is Joanne Worley. Have a great weekend, everyone. The preceding audio was via a Skype call.